0: we are looking at uh the crucifixion of christ uh, previously uh we looked at the deity of christ which pastor joe uh touched on and he had very good points on it um, and i would encourage us to revisit it as uh we try to just reconcile everything together the whole lesson on christology um, may someone take down some notes for Okay. Let people come <laughs> <laughs> All right, so <clears throat> so today's lesson is going to be a little bit different from what I usually do. I don't have a very uh, defined outline like I always do. but what I would want us to do as we are looking at this topic is let's look at, let's look at it as if we are moving through a journey, point by point, point by point. So that you can get to uh, the goal or what we were trying to get to. So, yeah. It is not going to be as long as the other lessons as well. I want to try as much as I can to give quality information instead of quantity. or Quantitative information. I want to give qualitative information so that you don't have too much to try to think about. So, um, the crucifixion of Christ... So, when we think of the crucifixion of Christ, there are two levels we look at. There's the surface level, and then there's the bedrock. The surface level of crucifixion is what a lot of us focus on a lot, or a lot of churches focus on. A lot of Christians, they focus on the surface of uh, the crucifixion. This surface of the crucifixion is the event of the crucifixion itself. What is this event? Uh, everyone would read the scripture. They can agree to say that Christ suffered. through um, Christ suffered though he was innocent. That's on the surface. That he was accused of doing wrong that he did not do. And that he was hated for no reason. Everyone would look at that and can see it clearly from the pages of scripture that this is what happened. Um... We can also see from the surface that Christ offended many people with the truth and they were not happy about it and sought uh, a way to destroy Christ. We read in scripture that he often spoke against the Jews of that time, the Pharisees, and they were offended by the truth to a point that they were looking for a way to accuse him or to, to, to kill him or to destroy him. They were looking for a chance to destroy him. That's a narrative on the surface. And on the surface of crucifixion, we may all look at it uh, and have a sense of pity. Uh, We may feel sorry uh, because the situation or the event may seem like injustice, of which it was injustice from the human perspective, that someone who's innocent, who has not done any wrong, um, goes to be... uh, killed as if he did something wrong. I'm I'm sure all of us, it's very saddening if you get accused of doing something and then you suffer for something you did not do, but you know for sure that you didn't do it. So when you look at that situation and then you look at the situation of Christ, you kind of resonate. And on the surface, almost anyone would resonate or would feel some sort of pity for what Christ went through. But now, understanding the doctrine of uh, the crucifixion, it takes more than understanding the surface level itself, or just understanding the event itself, or th- what happened as we read from the narrative, or the narratives in the Gospel. And uh, if we understand it as merely a historical narrative, just as we read it... Um, our understanding of the gospel is also limited. So, we see that a lot of times when we celebrate Easter or something, we're always talking about, ah, Christ died, ah, you know, he was nailed, Uh, you know, all these things that we see that make us feel sad or have pity, but do we have the understanding of what was happening underneath? Mm. So, that's the lesson that I would want to deliver today, the other part of the crucifixion or the deeper part of the crucifixion which I'd like to call the bedrock of the crucifixion what's happening in the surface I mean underneath the surface so yeah the bedrock of the crucifixion is the meat that we want to focus on or focus on today so what is this bedrock or this whole event we look at from the outside or from the surface it was decreed by God in eternity that is Christ, or his anointed, as scripture says, would suffer in such a way, right? What what way or in what way did he suffer? By being delivered, though he was innocent, delivered to the hands of sinful men. Being delivered to the Romans to kill him. We look at this and we feel sorry about it. Sometimes when you look at it, you feel like this shouldn't have happened. It, it, it wasn't fair, it wasn't just, but what, what's happening or the underlying event or the decree is that God ordained it, foreordained such an event uh, in eternity. And why did he do that? Why did he ordain such to happen? He, uh, he, he did it to satisfy an eminent demand of the divine holiness an eminent an imminent demand of uh, divine holiness holiness divine holiness demanded that for sin to be dealt with or for sin to be covered there had to be such suffering or the death that Christ uh, went through and again would ask why uh, was it so why did god have to to uh, satisfy that demand of divine holiness The reason is because mankind sinned against a holy God. So you see the stages of it? God before time decreed that Christ would come and suffer. And why should he suffer? Because God wanted to satisfy the immanent demand of, um, of divine holiness. And why was that so? Because mankind was to sin against God. I hope we are moving together in that. So now we want to journey through this uh, event or what's happening in the the background for a moment because this is what will help us understand what the gospel is all about. So we all know that one of the fundamental attributes of God is holiness. One of the fundamental attributes of God is holiness. What does it mean? That God is a perfect being and in him there is no evil, there is not even a speck. Of evil in him, he is all perfect, all holy. That's what um, holiness is. So the systematic theology defines holiness as self. uh, Sorry, it defines it as not as not self communicating love, but self affirming righteousness. (laughs) By uh, Augustus, something (laughs) something. Yeah, It's not uh, self-communicating love, but self-affirming righteousness. Holiness limits and conditions love. Holiness limits and conditions love. For love can will happiness only as happiness results from or consists within righteousness. That is with conformity to God. What does this mean? There's a lot of wording there. So... Love, the love of God does not stand by itself, right? The love of God is in the confines of His holiness. When He loves, it does not uh, compromise His holiness. As some people would like to think that God would have just loved and just forgave. But the demands of holiness uh, has to be fulfilled. For Him to love, He has to uh, love holiness, and holiness has to be the one to uh to to condition love we'll understand this further as we go so to satisfy the demands of his holiness love had to be delivered through the fulfillment of righteousness in punishing righteous, unrighteousness for punishment is what unrighteousness deserves that's love so god loves holiness that it He will not put on a scale and say, my love is more than my holiness. But holiness is what informs his love. I hope this is making sense. So, just to simplify it, we're saying that God is holy. One of his fundamental attributes is holiness. And he loves holiness. And the breach of this holiness can only be written off through death. That's what he decreed. He loves holy. God is holy. And if there is any unholiness, any unrighteousness, for that unrighteousness to be, for things to be cancelled out, there has to be death to satisfy the demands of holiness. So this death is not not only physical death, but also spiritual death. So we're going to read Romans chapter 6. Verse 20 to 23. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Verse 20 to 23. All right. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. So the is, Scripture is telling us what uh, the result of unrighteousness is. Now looking at from the perspective of holiness, that death is... The, if you sin against the holy God, the only end of it is death. If you obey God, if you live righteously, the only end is eternal life. This is what... It's it's like a it's it's a it's a yes or no thing. It's a binary, zero or one, not in between. We can also read uh, Ephesians chapter two, verse one to ten. Ephesians chapter two, verse one to ten. And you are dead in your trespasses. So this is now emphasizing on the spiritual death. So the punishment of sin is physical death. Everyone dies because of sin. So this is not just a natural way of life. We might, you know there's a debate between, what, between what's natural and what's not. But from the main of oh, the 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 first reasons for creation or what why God created mankind or the first of the intentions of creation was that, you know, mankind would live forever with God. But because of sin, men's days were cut short. So there's that and there is spiritual death, which is what Ephesians chapter 2 verse, uh, from verse 1 talks about. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's this spiritual death that's being talked about, that we all were once dead in our, in our trespasses. Being dead in your trespasses means that God has cut his... There's this kind of grace that God has given to a person when he's saved uh, that you are now able to live in the light. You cannot live in the light apart from God, Right? So, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was spiritual death where God cut short or cut off the supply of life, the eternal life. This is like you being able to do good. You are no longer able to do any good, right? It's been cut off. The source of righteousness is no longer there. You are dead in your trespasses. So, no matter how much you try to, 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 to be the light or to walk in the light, is not possible because you're not connected to the source of light. That's being dead in your trespasses, right? You're walking in darkness. So we once were dead in our trespasses. In us, there was not even an ability to uh, do good. There was no righteousness in us. We're just walking. We're, we're just there in the darkness. That's what it means. So that's the end of sin. Whatever Adam and Eve did we read about, the result of it was that spiritual death and there was physical death. So, how does this connect with the crucifixion of Christ? How does it connect with the crucifixion of Christ? So, uh, only God could save us sinners because of our total depravity. Only God could save us, sinners, because of our total depravity. This means that we have no ability to seek after God, and let alone the desire to be reconciled to God. So in us, there's no we, we cannot do it, right? If there was anyone who sought after God, then there was no need for Christ to come. But it's like everyone is running away from God. So how can God save a person who is running away from salvation? He has to apply salvation himself. He has to call people himself. He has to be the one to act on behalf of men. Basically saying that Christ did what we could not do for ourselves. This is very essential. Uh, we need to understand that um, lest we fall into the trap of believing that you know we have something that we can do about it our sin, and our salvation. No one, the Bible tells us that no one seeks after God. Always, like everyone is going like their own way. Everyone is going astray. No one seeks after God. So as holiness demands death, like we said, the holiness of God demands death to satisfy uh, um, its demands. Okay, yeah. Only God could do what men couldn't do. Only God could do what men could not do. So Christ then received the death penalty on our behalf while we were still totally depraved. So imagine that for a moment. That Christ died before you even no one was was. Eagerly waiting for salvation. <laughs> that that could be a lie to say that people are waiting for salvation. No one wanted that. Like Vodou always says, we were all, we were all saved kicking and screaming. We, were, we didn't want it. Imagine someone wanting to apply salvation or to save you. You don't want it. But it does the work that saves you anyway, whether you want it or not. This is what Christ did. Because we do not understand or we did not understand the need of salvation. We didn't understand it. But God knows what's good for us and he gives us anyway. And then we'll see it later as we are sitting right now. We can all give a testimony of salvation to say, God really, yeah, he saved me. I'm so thankful. Even even though you know that you know he found you when you were not even looking for him. <laughs> but you can say that. You, you can praise God and say, you know, thank God for salvation. Yeah. You didn't want it, but now you are thankful that you got it. This is what it means for Christ to die for you while you were still in your trespasses. So we'll read Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. We'll read, uh, okay, I'll see where, where I can stop. So, for a while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one who scarcely died for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us through whom we have now received reconciliation. So here you cannot debate anything. The Bible is saying it that you know, uh, no one was seeking after God. He died for enemies. Not that because we made a truce before, uh, he died for us to say, okay, die for us, and then we'll come. but we were like when you look at it, even when you read uh the the gospel narratives, people were scorning him people were shouting, people were spitting at him. This is the the hostility that was there and he died for such people. The like, the lights of Apostle Paul that even during those days and after he was crucifying he was I mean persecuting the church, actively persecuting the church. He was zealous in that work, thinking he's doing God's work. Think of that hostility that Christ died. For a person like Paul, even when he was still an enemy of uh, the church, an enemy of Christ. This is uh, this is what's happening underneath um the, the, the surface. So yeah. So holiness of God is the holiness of God is what informs his love so we cannot really say that you know you cannot put love by itself the moment you put love by itself then it's 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 not useful you know but God loves holiness he loves righteousness so much that he cannot compromise holiness and righteousness so any act of love that is done by God. Even by the people of God. Is also under the confines. Or the, the, the bounds of his holiness. Right. There are so many people. Or so many churches or Christians. That just like to emphasize. Love. 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 But when love just stands by itself. Without uh, the love for holiness. It's, it's void. What am I saying? If you love people you'd hate sin Mm -hmm. right if you'd love people you'd hate sin but it's so surprising that many churches they emphasize on love but they don't speak against sin so where is the love they're trying to separate love from holiness but if you understand God's holiness if you understand that God hates evil God hates wickedness then it should inform how you apply love When you tell someone you need to repent from your sin, that's love. Mm. When you flatter someone and not tell them that they should repent from their sin, then that's hatred because you've separated it out of holiness. So this is a great lesson we should have or we should uh, always think about. Like I said, this lesson is going to be very short. I wanted to give a, a bit of a qualitative uh, thesis instead of giving too much information to think about so <laughs> <laughs> So let me connect all of this by reading a statement from a from the systematic theology uh, that's what I've been using to. I didn't take everything out of it but to just understand something so you see, Swart Augustus, Swart, we, we want to learn. Huh? The Is this big volume? Augustus Hopkins, something, something. Yeah. So that one writes his stuff, and then he's like his footnotes and stuff. I don't know how he writes it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to read a statement that connects everything together, or oh, as a summary, so that it can be distilled into a, a, a statement that you can. If someone asks you about the crucifixion, they can, you can explain it in a, in a single statement. So the historical work of the incarnate Christ is not self-atonement. I'll repeat. The historical work of the incarnate Christ is not itself the atonement. It is rather the revelation of the atonement. Is that making sense? It is rather the revelation of the atonement. So like I said, it's not on the surface. If you just understand the surface, then you don't have enough information. You need to understand what's underneath. What's happening on the surface is a revelation of atonement, of the real thing. Right? The suffering of the incarnate Christ is the manifestation in space and time of the eternal suffering of God on account of human sin. So this this is the suffering. For example, when you look at it, we may think that the most painful thing that Christ endured was the physical pain. We we can agree it was painful. But when you see Christ crying, "My Lord, my Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" That that's a painful thing. So that's now you can see what's happening in the background, that I think me, I struggle to understand that part. I think if I really understood it, I would be a better Christian. If I really understood what was happening uh, when Christ was crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would, I would have been a better Christian. So we say it's the suffering of the incarnate Christ is the manifestation in space and time of the eternal suffering of God on account of human sin yet without the historical work which was finished on Calvary the age-long suffering of God could never have been made comprehensible to men. this is the thing I'm talking about the suffering that was happening that we could not see with our eyes this no matter how much you can try to understand it, it is difficult it's, it's in, incomprehensible what does it mean for Christ to, to cry, why have you forsaken me? What does it mean? Christ, who has been in union with the Father and the Spirit. He was He was with the Father throughout eternity. You cannot measure eternity. But for that moment, he was asking, he was crying to God, Why have you forsaken me? That's the most painful thing that he endured. And that was supposed to be us thinking of Christ, uh who has enjoyed union with Christ more than we are enjoying it now? Crying that. And in place of us, we are, we are the ones who are supposed to enjoy eternity apart from God. right? That, that was supposed to be us there. Uh, to, to feel that pain. That even we don't understand it. That's why maybe a lot of people in the world, they don't understand what it means to suffer the second death. Or to suffer the wrath of God. It's that separation that's painful. And unbelievers, when they do not repent, when they die, they will understand what it means to not have God or to not have God in their lives. So this is what Christ suffered on our behalf instead of us suffering that. That's where the pain is. So, the age-long suffering of God could never have been made uh, comprehensible to men. So to conclude, I'm just going to give two applications or implications. I don't know how to say that. So understanding this doctrine, that's the first one, helps us make sense of the gospel, the need for God to save us himself and not ourselves. Right? Talked about uh, total depravity. Me, I believe so much that... Um, The doctrine of, the Calvinistic doctrine, it makes so much sense. Because the Bible says it. I wouldn't want to think that I have it in me to save myself. Because when I got saved, I think I was not even aware that I'm getting saved somehow. (laughs) I was just living my life, and all of a sudden I'm like, what's going on in my life, you know, things like that happen. No one told me, uh, look for God. And I was so intrigued, I was like, yeah, I think you have a point. Let me look for God. I wasn't. I loved my sin so much. I'm sure all of you can say the same. You loved your sin so much that you wouldn't even think about looking for God or looking after or seeking after God. So we need to understand that there's nothing in us from all of our testimonies of salvation. Testimonies of salvation. There is nothing in us that would uh, make us want to go to God. So we need to understand this, that only God can save human beings. And only God could die in place of us. Because he is the only one who understood the need of salvation more than we do. And number two, it helps us understand the futility of work-based salvation knowing that man is not capable of saving saving himself so there's futility in work-based salvation thinking that there's something you can do it's connected to the first point there's nothing that you can do we're talking of uh, people who think that if i do more good then i'll be saved or be safe i'm sure we often encounter such people during evangelism Someone says, ah, you know, the reason why God would take me to heaven is because I pray more, I give more, uh, I fast more, all these things, thinking that they, are the, they they save people. But going back to the lesson of the demands of holiness, death, and the death of the Son of God on the cross is what saves, not works. God never give never gave an alternative to, uh, to find salvation. If you want to be saved, believe in the work of Christ. Even if you are to die for your own sins, it doesn't work. Only the death of Jesus Christ can save people. So this is uh, how I found it necessary to look at the crucifixion. Instead of looking at the details of the historical events, but to look at what was happening beneath what we see or what we read uh in the gospels so that's my time uh we'll leave yeah we have more time a lot of time to maybe there's some information that i've left out we can discuss further